Hi, this is High Priest of Conchu Ray from Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast and fellow collective member. You are listening to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock on Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano, and today we don't have a co-host. It's one of the problems of doing a show like mine where I'm always having somebody else on with me. John Wilson when I do the Warlock episodes, Brian Zeno when I do the Thanos episodes, Chris Matthews when we do the Avengers or Iron Man stuff, Joe, my brother, when we're doing Deadpool vs. Thanos. I can't always have an episode ready when I want to put them out. So, I've come up with another concept. I'm calling them Resurrection Supplementals. So basically these are episodes I'm going to try and do, hopefully shorter ones, so I can get them out a little quicker if I don't have anybody ready to record with in time for to put out an episode, where we're going to cover the other characters that are important in the Adam and Thanos story. Gamora and Pip when we get to them. Captain Marvel. Moondragon. Mentor and Eros. And our subject today... Mistress Death. Not going to happen all the time, but every once in a while, when I need to, we're going to pop one of these in and cover some of these other minor characters just to see, get a little background information on them. By the way, if anyone's listening to this and also listens to Legion of Substitute Podcasters and notices a correlation between this and the Superboy Chronicles episodes that Paul does when the others aren't available to record regular Legion episodes, yeah, that's because that's where I got the idea from. So, thanks, Paul. Like I said, this episode, we're going to be covering Death. And looking up Death's history in the Marvel Universe, found out that Death actually, technically, is a Golden Age character. Death had several appearances back in Marvel's Golden Age, when they were called Timely Comics. So I look back through there to see, because I want to see if maybe I can see some kind of through line from one version to another. And while Death's stuff is a little random, I have a theory that I've been working on with Death and Thanos. Anyway, the first canonical appearance of death oh and by the way i was using uh the complete marvel reading order CMR, cmro hyphen travis hyphen starns.com and comic db between the two of them that's how i came up with the chronology for marvel's death so if you're wondering where this is coming from that's where my research was now the first appearance of death we're showing is in marvel mystery comics number 21 now as you may or may not know back in the golden age most of these characters appeared in anthology books that had several different characters in them, you know, several different stories of different characters. And even if they had their own book, usually it wasn't stories featuring just them. Usually it was story like they had the main story and then there was a couple backup characters. Even if they had the book to themselves, it was different stories featuring them. So it wasn't like one big issue featuring Captain America or Batman or Superman. They would have three or four stories in there. So Marvel Mystery Comics was one of those anthology books, 
And in issue 21, death appears in two of the stories, featuring the original Vision and the original Angel. This was published on May 15th, 1941. Now, I don't have access to that. That is not on Marvel Digital Comic Unlimited, and I am not going to buy a copy of that issue just to review for the podcast. I don't have that much money. However, I will put a link into the show notes for the copy of the cover. However, the second appearance by Death is in the Human Torch number 5. And actually, when you look it up, it's called 5B. You might be wondering why it's called issue 5B. And I have a pretty decent guess, but I wasn't able to really find an exact answer. But based on other things I've seen for Golden Age comics, sometimes there was a mistake with the numbering. Because if you look it up, the issue before this one is called 5A. So this should have been called 6, but it wasn't. Anyway, like I said, that's next appearance. The second appearance is in Human Torch 5B. And we actually have that issue available in... Marvel Digital Unlimited, and it's actually worth reading. It's an interesting Golden Age issue. I was not expecting it. There's continuity. Now, Human Torch has a friend, uh, Jack Casey. Now, of course, he's a supporting character. That happened in all those issues. Batman had Commissioner Gordon. Superman had Lois Lane. Of course, they were in there. But besides Jack appearing in there, it also showed that he knew, because this story is called... The Human Torch battles the Submariner as the world faces destruction. So it has the Submariner. It already establishes they know them. And it's going to have several other timely characters. Some will just make minor appearances in there. And that's just pretty crazy to me. That really didn't happen very much in the Golden Age, with the exception of, like, the Justice Society issues, I thought. So I'm learning something here. Anyway, before we get to the synopsis of the issue... I want to go over some of these Golden Age characters because you may not know them. Now, I'm hoping you know who Namor the Submariner is. He's still active in Marvel. The original Human Torch was had a name of Jim Hammond. He was an android who was created by Professor Horton. And there was a problem and that when he finished the creation that once the android became contact with oxygen, he went on fire. Except he didn't get destroyed. He just was a thing on fire. Eventually, he gained control and then became the Human Torch. And basically, it's very much like the... Fantastic Four Human Torch. So the other characters in here. Toro. Thomas Raymond, who's the Human Torch's young sidekick. Same exact powers. Well, I think the most uh, given reason for his powers is he's a mutant. The Human Torch actually had a costume. Toro's costume was boots and speedos. And while it worked for the Na- Submariner, it doesn't really work for Toro. Maybe it's because he has the boots on. Namor just had the trunks. Toro wore boots as well, so it looks really weird. Okay, we have Kazar. Now, not the Kazar that we know in current Marvel, who lives in the Savage Land and has the saber-toothed tiger Zebu. This is the original Kazar, who originally appeared in pulp magazines like Conan the Barbarian or The Shadow, and was adapted into Marvel Comics. Basically, he's Tarzan, because he lives in Africa and lives in harmony with the animals, and they obey him and fights Nazis from there. I have no idea if he's still in continuity, because I don't know why the two of them have the same name, Kazar. But I'd be interested to see, because his real name is David Rand. So I wonder if he's related at all to Iron Fist, Danny Rand. That'd be interesting. Okay, we also have appearance by the Patriot, Jeff Mace, who's a reporter who became a costumed hero. No powers, just one of those patriotic action heroes. 
He's also famous because he was retconned into being the third Captain America from 1946 to 1949. For anyone who doesn't know, Captain America was a Golden Age character from Marvel, and he was published till about 1949. And then went away for a few years, they brought him back in the 50s for about three issues, didn't sell, went away again, and then came back in Avengers number four. But when they brought him back in Avengers number four, they established that he went missing near the end of World War II and Bucky died. And eventually, they said, well, why are we saying Captain America was around, you know, showing him in those stories he was around to like the 50s, but we're saying he went away. So the retcon they came up with is they took two other patriotic characters. I forget who the first, uh, the first one was known as the Spirit of 76, and the second one was the Patriot. And they said these guys became Captain, you know, took over for Captain America. I have to assume at this, by the point that they took over, since it was uh, Roy Thomas who came up this retcom, he's really good with that kind of stuff. I would have to assume by that point, like 1946, the Patriots' stories were done. So that's like his reasoning of why the Patriot wasn't apparent anymore. He was now Captain America. He lived until somewhat of the modern day and died of cancer. He also did appear on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, season 4. He was their director of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was played by Jason O'Mara. We also have the Angel, the original Angel, Thomas Holloway, a former surgeon who became a costume detective of no powers. He did end up with a mystic cape of mercury at one point, which gave him the ability to fly, but he rarely used it. And he shot people a lot. And, of course, we have Jack Casey, friend to the Human Torch and the Patriot. He also worked with the Patriot in his, in his real identity. I don't know if that was actually shown in the Golden Age comics, but that definitely was referred later on. So that was the introduction to our first supplemental episode. The first of eight that we have done on the show so far. Now, the problem with those early supplemental episodes was that I didn't have access to the earlier issues yet. So most of the early episodes I've done were done out of order. I mean, if you wanted to listen to them in order, you would have to first go to episode 76, then to 93, then to 66, etc. So here's something I've wanted to do for a bit. I'm going to be doing the podcast equivalent of a trade paperback, representing them in order. Just the parts that are relevant to the stories. None of the original promos, feedback, closing, etc. We're going to do these on this episode and on the next two. And that way we have a place where all these are available in the proper order. You might be asking yourself, does that really matter? Probably not. But it'll make me feel better. Without further ado, we're going to be starting off with the first appearance of death in the Golden Age Vision story from Marvel Mystery Comics number 21. So who is the Golden Age Vision? His real name is Arcus, A-A-R-K-U-S, and he was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, or maybe just Jack Kirby, as according to some, including Roy Thomas, his first story may have been done by Kirby only. Anyway, he was created in Marvel Mystery Comics number 13, November 1940. The Vision is an alien law enforcement officer from another dimension called Smoke World, and he appears and disappears in smoke. I read the first story from Marvel Mystery number 13, which is reprinted in Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Marvel Volume 4. Scientist Dr. Enoch Mason is trying to explore into other dimensions, and lucky for him brings the vision over right when he's being attacked by mobsters looking for either the money he owes, which he used to fund his experiments, or to blow up his house with him in it, which is probably not the best way to get their money back. 
The Vision, at least in this story, comes across very much like the Spectre from DC, freezing one of the mobsters with just a touch and tricking the other one into running straight into an oncoming car. The Vision is also able to change his form, at least he does in the first story, although he's not going to be doing that in the issue we're actually going to be talking about for this episode. But he can change form to look like a normal human as only those close to death can see my true form. That's my vision voice. In his true form, he's very tall and lanky with green skin and a bald bulbous head. He wears an all green costume with a red and yellow cape. And if you look at him next to the vision we know from Avengers, you can see how that look just had to be tweaked just a little bit to turn the one into the other. The Vision definitely seems to be one of the lower-tier, Golden Age timely characters, as he only appeared in 13 issues of Marvel Mystery Comics from issues 13 to 48, as well as an issue of Kid Comics. And that's it for the Golden Age. In the Silver Age, he did show up in an issue of Marvel Super Heroes, number 13, which is actually the second appearance of Captain Marvel, but that was just a backup reprint. And he sort of showed up in the 70s in Avengers 97, which is the last part of the Kree Skrull War. And, well, spoilers for this over 40, almost 50 year old story. <laughs> but in that issue, the latent mental powers of Rick Jones were activated, and he's able to create out of thin air versions of the heroes he read about as a kid to help the Avengers. These, of course, were all the Golden Age timely characters. They weren't the real ones, though, obviously. In the 80s, he popped up in an issue each of What If and Fantastic Four. And the 90s were a bit nicer to him, as he showed up in the second half of the 93 Invaders miniseries, the first issue of Marvels, and in a reprint of Marvel Mystery Comics. However, it's funny, but the 21st century seems to be a lot nicer to Division. Since 2004, he has appeared in issues of Avengers Invaders, The Torch, The Twelve, Invaders Now, All New Invaders, there's a lot of Invader series, and X-Men Legacy. And his most recent appearance was just a few months ago in X-Men Grand Design number one. Let's get on with our story, shall we? Okay, first of all, before I get into the specifics of this story with who did what, just remember, this is a Golden Age story. Records were not always kept of who did what, or even what the title of the story was from back then. So you kind of have to piece it together. People have to figure out sometimes what it is based on... um, It's almost like a mystery. The information I have here about this story, I've pieced together from a couple sources, including ComicBookDB, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Comic Vine, and the Complete Marvel Reading Order. If you think I'm saying something here that's incorrect, please let me know and tell me why you think it's incorrect. But for now, we're going to go with this as true. The Vision in The Sabotage Schoolhouse. Written by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Art by Jack Kirby. Inked by Joe Simon. Cover art by Alex Schomburg. Edited by Joe Simon. Cover dated July 1941. On sale date May 15th, 1941, with a price of 10 cents. And if you want to read this, you can find it reprinted in Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Marvel Comics, Volume 6. This story starts with a water spout, which, in case you didn't know, is a tornado taking place over the ocean, coming off of the Pacific Ocean and hitting a shore town. The police there are alerted to this, and it's about to hit PS, that stands for public school, in case you didn't know, PS 61. But they're not worried about it, because it's a new building, and it's built to withstand the winds from a tornado. Except that it's not, as we see teachers and students in danger from the building falling apart around them. And if that wasn't bad enough, 
the boiler has become dislodged and explodes, setting the building on fire as well. As the burning building falls apart around them, the faculty do their best to try and protect their students, and Death watches and laughs. Now, this does not look like the Death that Thanos is in love with. This is not a beautiful but severe brunette, or a cloak-covered female form with a skull instead of a face. This is an almost inhuman-looking skeleton wearing a cloak and enjoying the horror and terror before it. From the beginning here, we are seeing that Death is not just accepting the souls of the departed, but she's enjoying the fact that they will be entering her realm. Although, I don't think Death actually is going to be depicted as a quote-unquote she until the Jim Starlin Captain Marvel issues, but we're going to use the she pronoun for her because that's 97% of Death's appearances. It's a she, she's a she. The caption even says, The grim specter of Death shrieks in silent glee at the carnage and destruction. This was probably just a way in the 40s, of course, to symbolize that people were dying without actually showing it. But it also does kind of set up her characterization that we're going to see going on to the modern era. Where unlike the character of Death from DC, the one that appeared in The Sandman, that Death, she just has the job of being Death. She doesn't do anything to the living to cause it. She's just there when you die to take you in. This Death, as you can see, is not just waiting for you to come in. This death is enjoying the fact that you're coming in. It can't wait for you to come in. And it does help them make sense that years later, she's actually going to be looking for ways to make people come in. Not just enjoy that it's happening, but she's looking for ways to cause it. And little, well, not really a spoiler, but a little teaser. That's what's going to be part of the kickoff for the whole Infinity Gauntlet story. Anyway, back to this story. Out of the smoke... The Vision appears, pulling everyone he can out of the burning building. One of the members of the crowd of onlookers slips away before he's recognized. His name is Colgan, and he was the engineer who designed the building. I mean, they say engineer. I don't know a lot about building buildings. I thought it would be an architect who designed the building. Maybe that's a different type of architect. Maybe they use engineers back then instead of architects, although I'm pretty sure they had architects. Maybe Kirby and Simon just didn't realize that it was an architect. I don't know. Whatever. Colgan heads to the offices of the Paget Construction Company, and he there meets with Mr. Paget to let him know what happened and that the Vision is involved. Now, Mr. Paget gets really nervous when he hears about the Vision's involvement. So nervous that he decides he's going to take a spontaneous vacation and promote Colgan to be the new president of the company. Yay, Colgan! Although, Colgan knows he's just being promoted to take the real position of Fall Guy for when it comes out that the Paget Construction Company used substandard building materials and did not, build a build, did not actually build a building to code and lied about it to keep the extra money. But when he protests, Paget threatens to tell the cops about the murder that Colgan committed years ago. Though stuck with really no good option, Colgan says yes to the promotion. Soon enough, the truth about the shoddy building materials comes out, and newspapers and politicians are demanding action. Senator Reeves is appointed head of a committee to investigate the matter, and as he travels by train, a desperate Colgan sets a bomb on the track in hopes of stopping the investigation. However, the vision comes out of the smoke from the train, throws the bomb away, and captures Colgan for the senator. Later on, when Colgan is being interrogated, he is shot by Paget, who is hanging outside of the window. Too bad for him, there's a little smoke coming out of his gun, and the Vision pops out, who beats the holy hell out of him. Enough that rather than deal the Vision anymore, Paget confesses. The end. Okay, we gave you a synopsis of the story, but I just want to go through it real quick, looking at it. In case there's anything that pops out of me as I'm looking at the art, or at least something I want to describe. 
It's only a seven-page story anyway. We'll do it pretty quickly. So the first page has a, uh, the first panel on is a big three-quarters of the page. Not really part of the story, more like one of those uh, second covers you would see a lot in the Golden Age. Sorry, I mean the Silver Age. You know, like you have the cover of the story, and then you open it up, and the first page is almost like, well, a second cover telling you what's happening in the story. Which always was weird to me. I mean, it's one thing if it's, if it's uh, issue has multiple stories, and this is one of the stories that's not getting the cover. But the one that has the cover, why do you need the secondary cover? It just feels like it's a waste of page. Unless, of course, they didn't know which one was going to get the cover. But otherwise, I don't know. Anyway, here we have this giant three-quarters of the page panel of the Vision holding what it looks like, I'm assuming, a little boy, protecting him from the falling debris, from the school, obviously. Page two is where we see most of the destruction of the school from the tornado and the fire, and it does look pretty horrific. There's smoke everywhere, which is good because that's how the vision shows up. But parts of the building are falling over. We we keep seeing these images of teachers holding kids, trying to protect them with their own bodies. And of course, when the broiler blows up, there's fire everywhere. Like I said, there's got to be several of these teachers and students who are dead in this issue. No wonder death is enjoying it. And on page three, when uh, Colgan goes to talk to Mr. Paget and tell him about the vision, it's great. Paget's sitting there like a 40s mobster with his suit and his hands clasped like Mr. Burns with a cigar in his mouth. And as soon as he's told the vision's involved, he just looks scared as hell. The cigar's falling out of his mouth. He's like, what? The vision? The guy who jumps out of smoke? Oh, crap. I'm out of here. Page four, Colgan's setting the dynamite on the railroad tracks to try and make the train crash and kill the senator and probably a hell of a lot of other people. He looks really happy with his plan, which is really stupid. I mean, what does he think is going to happen? Hmm. The guy we have investigating this shoddy construction was killed by a bomb that disrailed the train and killed a whole lot of other people. Oh, well, I guess we shouldn't do anything about it. (laughs) That's just... Colgan's just really desperate. It's lucky for him the Vision stopped his plan and made sure the bomb didn't blow up the train because otherwise he definitely would have got the death penalty. Granted, he was killed, so I guess he did get the death penalty, but... And finally, on page six, when the Vision is fighting Paget, And I say fighting, it, it's actually just a beatdown. I mean, literally, it's what? One, two, three, four, five panels. Five panels of the Vision just smacking this guy around. He is just beating the crap out of him, which he fully deserves. And most likely, he got the death penalty. It was a fun little story. All right, our bags are packed and we got the snacks. It's time for the Lombox Crusade road trip to the Lombox Mobile crew. Check on. Check on. on. Dang it. Everyone buckled up. Here we go. Well, now that the garage is empty, Gene will have more space to record episodes of LBC Irregulars, the indexing of the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes TV series. Oh, no. Did anyone remember to leave Clinton some food down in the basement? He's going to need it as he makes more episodes of Fan Film Fridays, his ongoing look at online fan films. Why are you speaking in such a scripted manner, Dark Web? Anyway, you can relax. I asked Rick, or was it Jeff? Who can remember? I asked the attic guy to come down from time to time to check in on Clinton. You know, take some breaks from recording Monday Movie Muck About, his movie review show. Weasel Skull, did you give Rick the key to the basement? Key... Sounds like LBC headquarters is in good hands, Death Probe. Right you are, Christados. Oh, Pat, can we stop off at KB Toy Store? I'm going to pick up some Transformers and G.I. Joes. They remind me of Transformers Chronicles and G.I. Joe Chronicles, 
our show's going through the Marvel run of Transformers comics and the Devil's Due run of Joe comics. Well, while you guys are doing that, we can also stop by a Blockbuster video and get some tapes to watch for action film face-off. That's the show where we discuss two action films and have them duke it out to see which one is the episode champion. Is that VHS or beta? Eh, either one's fine. We've got a lot of stops to make, but if we can, let's squeeze in the Walden books and score some comics for us to talk about on Crusader Chronicles, the show where we move chronologically through the Amazing Spider-Man comics and include a bonus issue from the same release date as the Spidey we're covering. I will definitely keep an eye out for our Walden books. It'll come in handy for the Pure Lombok Crusade episodes, our time capsule show where we take a deep dive into a randomly selected comic and talk about news, music, and movies, and ads that were popular when the books were released. I'll also be on the lookout for our electronic boutique, EB, if you guys don't know the lingo back then, so we can get some more comic-related video games for us to discuss on Comics to Council Crusade. Good thinking. If time permits, let's hit Circuit City. I need more positrons for our Pop Culture Positcast show. The one where we find all the good stuff in pop culture that others seem to poo-poo. Positrons? Shut up and go with it. These old-timey, out-of-business store jokes doing anything for you folks? Well, if you like old-timey stuff, we also offer Saturday Matinee Theater. Our look back at old TV shows, serials, and films that have kind of been forgotten. I think that about covers it. We definitely want to be your road trip crew, folks. Whether it's your commute to work or a road trip of your own, why not pass the time with us, your friends at the Long Box Crusade? Once again, that's Long Box Crusade, available on all your finer podcatchers. Good job, team. I'm getting hungry. Pat, stop at the next Kenny Rogers Roasters that you see. Or Pentagons. Burger Chef! And today we're going to be talking about what is technically the second appearance of death from the Angel Story in Marvel Mystery Comics number 21. The reason I say it's technically the second appearance is because the first appearance of Death is from the Vision story from Marvel Mystery Comics number 21. I don't know. Do you want to call it the second appearance? It's in the same issue, but different stories. Doesn't matter. Either way, it's the next chronological appearance. Before we get into this story, let's start with talking about who is the Golden Age Angel. The Angel was Thomas Halloway. He first appeared in Marvel Comics number 1, in 1939. That's the same first appearance as Namor and the original Human Torch. Created by Paul Gustavuson, a Golden Age artist who also created the Human Bomb for Quality Comics. And by the way, Quality Comics was later bought out by DC, so that is the same Human Bomb that's part of DC's Freedom Fighters, in case you're aware of them. The Angel had a simple costume, blue bodysuit with yellow angel wings on the chest, a red cape, and sometimes a black domino mask, sometimes no mask. Looking at the list of his Golden Age appearances, he mostly appeared in Marvel Mystery Comics and Submariner Comics. He was presented as being a normal person who just fought crime with either his fists or with guns, because like many Golden Age heroes, he had no problem with killing his enemies. However, he may have had some powers. I saw that after one adventure, he received the Cape of Mercury that enabled him to fly though he apparently only used it a few times. Which is weird, because that would make perfect sense for a character called Angel. Which is probably why they made the X-Man Angel able to fly. He's also listed as having been born in the late 1870s. But since that would make him about 60 or so at the time of his first appearance, it's speculated that there might be something special about him that slowed down his aging. Now, to be fair... 
I wasn't able to tell if that was something from the original Golden Age stories or was retconned in later. So, so without knowing that, I'm just going to assume in this story that he's just a normal human being. Alright, I think that's more than enough info on the angel than is needed to enjoy the story. If you want further info, just check out the show notes. I'll be putting a link to his Marvel Wiki page. There's plenty of info on him there. The Angel and the Weird Ghost of Amber Swamps The writer for the story is unknown, but since the creator Paul Gustavuson is listed as the penciler and inker, and I have seen him listed as the writer elsewhere, I'm going to just assume that he did everything and wrote the story. Now, the cover art was done by Alex Schomburg. Editor was Joe Simon. Original cover date, July 1941. The on-sale date was May 15th, 1941, with a cover price of 10 cents. You can find this reprinted in Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Marvel Comics Volume 6 from 2004 and digitally on Comixology. Now, we're going to try something a little different this episode. Since this is a Golden Age story, and a lot of times in Golden Age stories, they both show and tell. In other words, you'll see in the art something happening, and the captions or the word balloons will tell you what's happening as well, kind of redundantly. So, since they have that here, and since it's only a nine-page story, we're going to do a little bit of dramatic reading. Hopefully it doesn't suck. All right. <clears throat> Chelcroft, stately mansion of the millionaire C.J. Miller, looms magnificently across its ghostly setting in the Georgian jungle. A few years ago, a center of southern social activity. Today, a desolate mansion, occupied only by C.J. Miller and his servants. Overnight, its splendor has turned into a gaunt horror, and the very air about it is stirred by the weird ghost of Amber Swamps. As darkness blankets Chelcroft, a terrifying scream bellows from its hollowness, and out of the front door runs the aged butler Norton, cold with fright, his eyes filled with horror. Barely a few feet across the stately lawn, Norton stops suddenly, grasping at his throat as if some invisible being had clutched it. A moment later, he drops to the ground, dead, his throat gashed horribly. While death cloaks Chelcroft, a daring figure streaks to the scene of horror. It's the angel. Holy smokes, there wasn't a soul near him. I see I got here too late to prevent a ghastly murder. Whatever it is that did this, it's no ghost, and I'll be hanged if I don't get to the bottom of all this. As the angel bends closer to the fallen Norton, a glittering object misses his head by a few inches. What the? So, that's the weird ghost of Amber Swamps, eh? Ghost my foot. Covering the ground to the house quickly, the angel catches a glimpse of a figure on the roof of the impressive mansion. Well, the ghost has taken shape. Maybe this ghost won't be... Help. What the? A split second later, and the angel is in the house. That scream again. It's coming from the hall. Help. Help. Holy hat. He's throwing her off the balcony. In a flash, the angel speeds out, reaching under the balcony in time to save the girl from being dashed to death. You're all right now, but I'll have to leave you. Say, who are you anyway? I'm the reporter after a story. I came here alone. Okay, bud. Now let's you and I play ghosts. With a terrific blow, the angel knocks the weird figure off the balcony. Well, get up. Fire glares in the towering brute's eye. And then he charges, little realizing the powerful strength his antagonist possesses. The angel strains tensely to clamp a deadly grip on the brutal figure, but without success. Boy, this guy's the strongest I've ever tackled. Then, the angel's foot slips, and the towering figure sends him down to the floor below. 
but the angel makes a quick turn in midair and lands on his feet in a shower of broken marble. Are you alright? Looks as if we're not through yet, bud. The supposed ghost of Amber Swamps quickly darts around the corner and disappears through a secret panel. But the girl watching him learns where the secret release is. Well. Then, as the angel reaches the top of the stairs, Hey, he's gone. There must be a secret panel somewhere. I saw him press this small panel. You're right. The wall sounds hollow. The angel dashes through the panel into the secret passage, and the girl follows him. Well, something tells me I know who the ghost of Amber Swamps is right now. Moving cautiously, the angel makes his way through the dark passage and into the dismal cellar of the mansion. Oh, oh, a light down there. Duck, look out. Suddenly. Missed again. What is that weapon, I wonder? Seeing the shadow in the lighted passage, the angel streaks out with deadly fury. Miller, your casting isn't as good as it used to be in your earlier days. Maybe this will hold you for a while. Quite a contraption, Miller. Old razor blades at the end of a fishing line, and this new automatic reel-in device. Too bad you are so famous as a casting expert. It gave you away. He knows who I am, all right. Now, Miller, will you remove your hair-raising disguise, or shall I? I've got to get him out of the way. With no answer from the grotesque figure, the angel casts the deadly razor blades, cutting the mask off Miller's face. You can talk now without giving yourself away. Your face is enough to let me know who you are. Yes, yes, I'll talk. I'll tell you all, because you won't live to tell it to anyone else. Why, he's raving mad. For 25 years I've fed the Society of the South. It's taken every cent I've had, but now I'm broke. But no one will know it. Chalkroft will go down with me. And the reason? The weird ghost of Amber Swamps. Ha ha ha. After the ghost kills all who know what has happened, it will get me too. Ha ha ha. I will kill myself. And now that you know, the ghost of Amber Swamps will get you too. But Miller's lunge is met by as powerful counterblow as his own. A bitter struggle ensues. The battle becomes a deadlock. You're a powerful man. Perhaps I won't leave here alive, but neither will you. Becoming more intense every minute, the battle between the two powerful men rages on in the cellar of Miller's palatial home. A powerful blow sends Miller spinning backwards. His head strikes the reel of his deadly weapon and releases the reel and device, reeling in the line which sends his own deadly razor blade streaking back with fatal effect upon himself. Well, Miller, the ghost of Amber Swamps did get you, as you said. Too bad your warped mind led you to your crazy end, for Chelcroft and yourself. My, what a ghost story. And so, the mad ghost of Amber Swamp meets his end. But, the angel still carries on in next month's Marvel Comics. Okay, few thoughts on the story. Not a lot, because, well, it wasn't that long a story. First of all, since it was only a nine-page story, I did like how Gustafsson didn't waste any time explaining why the angel was investigating this. He just is, and off we go. However, the actual plot by the villain was a bit confusing to me, so he spent his money... I wasn't sure what he meant. I'm assuming, like, having social parties or something... And somehow went broke, and so was mad about that, so his plot was to make everyone think a ghost was killing a bunch of people, and then he would get killed by the ghost too. Why? And what? But then again, the whole thing was supposed to be that he had gone insane, so maybe his plot wasn't supposed to make sense? 
Sure, why not? As for Mistress Death, who is the whole reason we're doing this episode, she only appears in one panel. Not surprising. It's panel two on page three. Coincidentally, the same panel where the angel first shows up. Now, like Death's other Golden Age appearances, it's basically just the specter of Death lurking over a scene of terror. I'm assuming, of course, that he didn't do any research on these old stories before using her, but it does fit with the characterization of Death that Jim Starlin uses. Mistress Death wants souls, but not just that, enjoys seeing people die, likes the cruelty of humanity. She doesn't have any sympathy for the living at all. She doesn't care. She gets the souls, great, but if they can die in horrible, horrible ways, even better. Which does make sense why then she would pick a champion for herself like Thanos, as opposed to somebody who maybe would kill people, but doing it in a much more humane way. Thanos is mean and cruel, and she likes that. Now, as far as this story goes, it's okay. Paul Gustafson's figures are good. His Miller is awesome. The villain, both when he's masked, with a, so, and also when he's been unmasked. He looks great. Angel looks pretty good, too. But his way of telling a story isn't that good. There's one page that does have, if you read older comics, where they would have like arrows going to different panels telling you how you have to read the story, because otherwise you won't be sure which way to go. There's a page that has that. That's not the problem. The problem is there are three or four other pages that need those arrows and don't have them. So there was a couple times, it actually took me a minute or two to try and guess which way to read the story. And it wasn't always obvious. And I'm still not sure on one or two of them if I was reading it the right way. So his storytelling isn't that great. Again, I'm guessing he's the writer, but I haven't read any other Angel stories, or as far as I know, any other stories by Paul Gustavuson. Maybe, yeah, he's not that great a storyteller. Maybe the ones he wrote, where he's able to dictate the way the story goes, are better. And he's just following a script. Because I'm pretty sure back in the Golden Age, they all work full script. So if the writer said, do this next, he did that next. I can't say. I'll have to read more things by him to get a feel for how he writes. But overall, eh. It's okay. At least it's only nine pages. But it could have been better. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. 
Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. The Human Torch number 5B. The Human Torch battles the Submariner as the world faces destruction. Written in pencil by Carl Burgos, inked by Bill Everett, Though, depending on how you look this up, it might just say written in pencil by Carl Burgos and Bill Everett. Since Carl Burgos is the creator of the Human Torch, and Bill Everett is the creator of the Submariner, and this basically is a giant 64-page team-up story between the two of them, I could go either way. But I kind of do tend to believe that it's the two of them working together. Letterer and colorist are unknown. Cover art, Alex Schomburg. Edited by Joe Simon. Cover dated fall 1941. On sale date... October 8th, 1941, on sale date courtesy of Mike's Amazing Marvel Comics. Original cover price, 10 cents. And you can find this issue reprinted in Timely Presents The Human Torch One Shot from 1999, Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Human Torch Volume 2 from 2007, and of course digitally on Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited. This issue, as far as my knowledge of Golden Age stories goes, is a little different than most other ones. While this is broken up into three parts, it's all one story. One giant 64-page story. But they still go with the Golden Age and Silver Age trope that the first page of each part is its own splash slash second cover page. Part one, we see the Human Torch facing off four horsemen. Death. See? Death. Hitler. Mussolini. And... Namor the Submariner. As it says here, Rough showed they rode over the world, the four horsemen of destruction, and their names are written in blood. Hitler, Mussolini, Death, and Submariner. Yes, the Submariner, gone berserk, also has dreams of world conquest and world enslavement. But from the groaning millions of whom they are crushing, rises the cry of a desperate world calling for a deliverer, for a man to battle Hitler and Mussolini. A man who can also halt the terrible path of doom which is being carved by the maddened Submariner. And here he comes, light in the sky, with the torch of freedom. The Human Torch. Now, by the way, that's the only appearance of death in this part, but death does have a bit more of a part in part two. So we're just going to go through part one as quickly as we can. Part one starts with dinner at a house. Attended is the Human Torch, Toro, Patriot, Angel, and Jack Casey. By the way, everyone's wearing their costumes, which means it looks like Toro sitting there naked. <laughs> because you can't see his trunks under the t- from the table line. <laughs> anyway, they're all there to say goodbye to Jack Casey because he is leaving to cover the war for the, con- as they call it, the Consolidated Press. The war in Europe. Because remember, at this point, 1941, we didn't join World War II until December 8th. Until Pearl Harbor. So at this point, we were still neutral. And the torch mentions that, unfortunately, the Submariner can't be there for the dinner because he had received an urgent message from his mother that he was needed in Atlantis. And we go to the Submariner swimming home to Atlantis, and he sees a, a battle between the navies and the air force of Russia and Germany right above the location of Atlantis. So, of course, he decides to smash them up, and he does to stop that battle. But when he gets down to the bottom of the ocean to Atlantis, it's pretty much destroyed. No thing there, no life. It almost looks like they just have regular farms. They see a silo. It looks like a farm under the water. And everyone's like, there's all skulls and skeletons around. I mean, would they really have been that 
been that long? Has it been that long since he's been gone that everyone who died there is now a skeleton? Anyway, <laughs> it's still amusing. It's actually, the art's pretty good for the time. It's actually amusing. Eventually, he works his way to the underground shelters, and he finds life there, including his mother. She tells him it's been destroyed because of all the battles between the British and the Germans and the French. I mean, sorry, the British, the Germans, and the Russians happening above the waves. He also meets a visiting princess, Rathia, who's an Atlantean princess from a city in the Baltic. Same story for her. And she convinces Namor that what they should do is call all the different cities under the water and form a war council to decide what to do because they're all in danger from this war above the waves. The war council does get together, and we got some green-looking underwater people and some ones that look like fish and also ones that look like warhorses. Anyway, they eventually the war council decides that they're going to form one army together to take out all the armies above to stop the war, and Namor shall lead them. And of course, Rathia also stops putting the idea in Namor's head, hey, you know, if we defeat them, we kind of rule the world. And, you know, we rule the whole world, and you rule us. Get the idea, buddy? And while Namor seems to be being seduced by this, he's not a complete dick. He does send a telegraph to uh, Casey, asking where he's assigned and wants to know right away. And when he tells him he's covering the Russian-German war in that battlefront, Namor sends an answer back, don't go there. Casey goes anyway, but he tells the human torch, and the torch decides he wants to investigate. Now, when Casey gets there to Russia, his way of covering the war is to make friends with a Russian officer, get him drunk, knock him out, take his uniform, and sneak up to the front wearing the uniform. I don't really know if that's how war correspondence works, but okay. While they're watching the battle, he sees a whirlpool happening in the river that they're fighting by. And the whirlpool gets stronger and stronger, and all of a sudden starts flying out of the water, drowning all the Russians and the Nazis. Casey almost is killed as well, but the Human Torch and Toro decide, had decided to follow him to see what Namor's warning was about and rescue him. So the Human Torch and Toro take Jack Casey to a safe location. And we actually have a fun little commentary on the war, as they show the official communiques from Germany and Russia about that battle, in which all their troops were killed, both of which they basically say, oh, we won and we kept them from coming and we didn't lose anybody, which is a little amusement factor and also kind of a less naive view of war from that time, although maybe it's just because it's the enemy. You know, I wonder if they would have said the same about us, about the, you know, about if it was an American that died and then America put it, would they have had America put the same communique out? I don't know, but either way. So meanwhile, underwater, Namor's reveling in his victory, that, that first victory, and Rathia, of course, is really stroking his ego. It's like, oh, you're like a new Napoleon, except you'll win where he lost, and you're so awesome. Above the waves, they find out the human torture Toro are looking for him. He's like, look, I'm not worried about their friends. You know, now she, of course, Rathia's says, hey, when a man wants to be king, he doesn't really have friends. You know, only pawns. And his neighbor goes, well, we can still use them. That can help. So he brings them down and tells them, you know, he basically tells them his plan that he is going to be the new ruler of the world. And, of course, there is a fight. But the problem for the Human Torch and Toro is that they're underwater, and while they are in a part of Atlantis that, or room or two that has air, all Neymar has to do is not open some windows or doors, and basically water comes in. Now, the Human Torch is able to escape, Toro does not. So Namor keeps him as a prisoner and goes after the torch, but the torch boils the water around him, so Namor decides to just shoot back down to Atlantis. Of course, the torch hopes that at least Namor won't kill Toro, and he goes to try and warn 
the Russians and the German and Germans, since those are the ones he's going after first. But they don't believe it. They both think it's propaganda from the other side. Continue their fighting. Meanwhile, he says, well, the hell with them. Because basically he finds out Namor's plans is to use these different things like that to start raising floods and flood areas. So therefore, just stop all, all the fighting. Part two. Part two doesn't have a full page splash. It has a two-thirds page splash of the human torch flying through the flooding tunnel while death looks on. One-way passage, and the warder at the gate is death come to claim his toll. With the entire regiment wiped out, Torch makes a desperate effort to escape. Up he swings, out of the roaring waters, and his body flames as he clings to the ceiling of the tunnel. But death laughs, laughs, and waits. Torch is able to basically burn a little hole out to get away from the water and then burn his way up to the surface. But he is captured, anyway. And Namor puts him in a cell that is basically, he's up to his neck in water. And he feeds him a little drug each day to eventually, after about a month or so, the Human Torch is uh, Namor's slave. And the Human Torch helps him take out some ships, killing all aboard, and shows him all his weapons and armies ready to take over the world. Now, Toro also is in a, cage, is in a dungeon like that, but Toro, as a child, and also haven't been there for way longer than a month, has been started going crazy. He's sick. Namor does like the kid, so he takes him out to have him go to a hospital, and the kid has a super high fever. He's delirious. He's speaking in rhyme. But Toro apparently does get enough of himself back while he's getting, you know, in the hospital that he's able to burn a flame on, fly out of Atlantis, makes it to shore uh, of Britain, and is found there. And brought to a hospital where Casey finds him. And when he tells Casey that the torch is down, prisoner of Namor. Namor and his men along attack the British and take out a whole battalion. Also take out an Italian fleet heading towards them as well. And he's also using his uh, his machines that raise the water and, you know, flood areas. Luckily, at least in the area of Africa, a lot of the animals, including Kazar, are safe on their ark. And he sends the torch to Russia to north of Siberia, to melt out some glaciers and send them down towards Moscow. I guess in the Marvel Universe, we actually are blaming global warm- the start of global warming on the human to- and the waters rising on the Human Torch. And as the glacier is heading down towards Russia, it's crushing some villages, and we see a di- giant silhouette of death. Obviously, they don't see it, but it's supposed to be death there. As all the villagers are running, saying, First war, now this, won't it ever stop? And Death answers them, never, ha, never. We also see Death looking over Hitler's shoulder, as Hitler looks over plans and maps of Russia, looking to see where the uh, glacier is headed. And he says, think I'll concentrate all my divisions on the southern front, with the Red Army demoralized by bad news from home, victory should be mine. But Death tells him, although he obviously doesn't hear her, oh no, Adolf, the final victory shall be mine. Now, I'll get to the rest of the story in a minute, but that's the end of Death's appearances. If it was just that one splash page, I wouldn't even have bothered. But we also get, like, Death interacting with the story here and interacting with Hitler. And now, just, you know, peek behind the curtain, I just this weekend also recorded with Brian for Captain Marvel 33 and with Joey for Deadpool vs. Thanos 4, so those will be the next two episodes coming out. And it's something I mentioned both of them, is that based on what I'm seeing here, and all, all the other things I've seen with Death, Death's interaction with Thanos, at least, and Deadpool. It doesn't look like Death really is worried about things. Death kind of just, like, looks for ways to entertain itself. Because I think that's actually Death's view, what she just said to Adolf. The final victory shall be mine. Everything's gonna die. 
whether any of the characters come back to life or not, eventually they're all going to die for the for real. The worlds will end, the universe will end, and everything will be gone. And death wins. I think death is just kind of entertaining itself. And that's why it messes with Thanos and Deadpool and whoever. And that's what's going on here. And it looks like, I mean, to me, that's what it looks like, because it looks like from the very beginning, death is just trying to keep busy and entertained. That's all. All right. Let's see if we can get through the rest of the story. As the glaciers are headed towards Moscow, the Russians leave bombs trying to destroy it. It breaks them up a little bit, but it doesn't really do enough to stop the glacier. It just makes it break up into three smaller icebergs. And now they start sending, you know, heavy artillery and planes to bomb it and shoot it up, but the Human Torch takes those out. But after, while he's finished doing that, he happens to fly over Moscow, and he finds the American embassy. And he sees the uh, our flag, and that, seeing the flag, completely shocks him out of his mind control. And he is now back to normal. And he decides he has to now stop these glaciers, and almost as naive as his version of, oh, I saw the flag, oh, that's my flag, hey, I'm not mind controlled anymore. The Russians are just as naive as the Human Torch now starts trying to stop the glaciers, and the Russians say, stop shooting at him, he's on our side now, hooray for Torch! He was just trying to kill you, whether or not he's trying to stop it, screw it, I'd be still trying to shoot him. I wouldn't trust him. Anyway, Human Torch uses power to dig a big trench, and one of the icebergs goes in that, so that stops that one. He melts the other one, turning into steam, and somehow not killing all the Russian soldiers nearby from the intense hot steam. So, that ends part two. The Human Torch is no longer mind-controlled by Nemor, and he has stopped one of the three icebergs. But the other two are still a problem. Part three. The opening splash page, I'm actually noticing here, in this issue, each part, the splash page is smaller and smaller. The first part, part one, it was a whole splash page. Part two was like two-thirds of it. And part three, it's also two-thirds, but there's also a panel on there. So the regular panels are encroaching on these splash pages. I guess they realize as they're going on, they don't need them. So part three starts with the Human Torch melting what I believe is the second of the three glaciers. And somehow, even though it turns all to steam, not water, this one isn't raising the water level, um, I'm surprised the intense hot steam if this is a glacier big enough to crush Moscow still, does not kill everybody. <laughs> but somehow it doesn't. And he is told by one of the Red Army officers he is needed at the American Embassy. He heads over there, and they re- receive a radio call from Casey asking for the torch to warn- let him that um, Toros t- is seriously ill and in a hospital in London. He's ready to go there, but Casey also tells him that there's a glacier coming south over Hudson Bay on the way to the United States, which is probably the third one that the torch started. So I guess he really did start to break up these glaciers way up towards the Arctic, where even though two of them went to uh, Russia, I guess one of them was broken off early enough to still head the United States. I don't think the geography fully works, but we'll pretend it does. So he's headed to Canada to take care of that, but Namor's also heard, and he's over there to take out the torch. They fight over the glacier, but this torch is still able to melt the glacier, and it heads out into a river, river right into the sea. So we still do raise the water level a bit, I'm sure. If it's a giant glacier that causes that much problem, it probably is going to raise water levels and bring the temperature down. But we're not going to worry about that. There's a war on. There's more important things to care about. And he heads to London to find Toro, and the blitz is happening. And he wants to take Toro to New York, to a hospital in New York where he's safer. But Toro, I'll give him credit here, is pretty brave. 
He's like, there's a little kids even younger than him in this hospital, and they don't get to leave, so he doesn't want to leave either. And meanwhile, Namor is with Rafia and making their new plans, and his plan is to use his turbines that raise the water to flood Germany. As he says, as you'll note, Germany has no outlet to the sea. With our turbines, we'll give her one. Ha ha. And they basically flood Berlin partially, and to the point where they're... Giant whale-looking ships are able to actually go through the streets of Berlin and attack. And there's a big fight between him and the Luftwaffe. And they form a, they cause a tidal wave that floods a lot of the German troops. And while this is happening, and this is water, they're coming up from the Mediterranean Sea, apparently the turbines cause enough ruckus that it knocks the Rock of Gibraltar down. And that blocks, apparently it's big enough. Now, that I don't know whether it is or isn't. That is big enough because the Rock of Gibraltar is at the beginning of the Mediterranean Sea, where the Mediterranean Sea meets the Atlantic Ocean, and it blocks it off. And apparently this causes the Mediterranean Sea to, com to completely drain dry. So I guess the Mediterranean Sea has a drain... And since it goes to the Atlantic Ocean, it keeps water keeps going in. But once it's blocked from the Atlantic Ocean, water all goes down the drain. So the Mediterranean Sea is empty, and we see Mussolini's Italian fleet is now stuck in the mud on the ground on the bottom because there's no water. And the Atlanteans attack, and they're fighting basically on the ground there because their ships can't move until Namor bring fixes the rock of Gibraltar back up and uh, floods the entire Mediterranean Sea back up, killing all those. Italian soldiers. So again, we have major, major death toll in this issue. I mean, the death toll in this issue is in the thousands. And now Namor is using his turbines on Amer in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on the American fleet and uses it on New York City. And there's this awesome panel that I have to put up there somehow of him basically flooding Manhattan. As the panel sh says, they say New Yorkers have seen everything, but here's something they never saw. A mammoth tidal wave, so high it surmounts the city's tallest building, so wide it stretches from the Battery to the Bronx, so terrific it slams down the world's most famous skyline as if it were built with cards, and then its fury still unspent, spans the Hudson River and roars westward. Goodbye, Broadway, so long, Times Square. Down goes the Empire State Building. Down goes the George Washington Bridge. But the spirit of the populace stays up. Forewarned by the president to prepare for such an emergency, they respond to water raid sirens, don diving helmets, and enter watertight shelters below the flooded subways. New York City is destroyed. Apparently, the Human Torch is not too worried about the complete destruction of New York. He just says, the wave will probably narrow off the top and form a river to float the whales. Yeah, New York City is being completely flooded. Who cares? This isn't a real serious issue. I mean, we're just seeing bridges fly away, float away and buildings topple. <laughs> More destruction is happening this issue before the United States during World War II than has ever happened since. Though, well, I guess he actually is concerned. Never mind, because he flies down... Bohr is using his power to bore into the earth, weighed down almost to lava. And then flies back up, and the water all goes down that and basically just goes away. So that was pretty quick. But the water goes down, hits the lava, melts, you know, basically evaporates, turns to steam, and then flies up, goes up the second hole the human torch used to go back up, and basically envelops all the uh, ships that the Submariner have, and uh, ruins them almost boiling the people alive in there, too. So a lot of Atlanteans dying, too. Although I have to wonder why the steam caused damage this time, but didn't cause damage to the Russians. But anyway, 
Sunmire breaks out of his because it's very hot. And Namor chases, sorry, Human Torch chases him. Namor flies into the Statue of Liberty. And there, I guess, Namor realizes that he's in trouble and his fate is the same as Napoleon's or Caesar's. And so he begs for forgiveness. He says, the spell's broken. And he blames Rathia for everything. Now, granted, she was egging him on, but it really didn't take much. I mean, she just mentioned it to him and he went, oh, really? Hmm. But apparently it's good enough for the torch. And so he tells Namor to radio her and tell them that they're doing great and to have all the troops head back to Atlantis. Namor swims down to Atlantis and the Humor Torch, meanwhile, makes arrangements with the uh, police because they're using underwater torches and he asks them how it works and they have a compressed air pocket. Compressed air shoots a pocket of air down there so therefore the torch can work underwater. So he has to talk to some evil engineers basically to make something for himself so he can flame on underwater. And once he gets down, you know, he gets down there, Namor's down there, and Rathia apparently realizes that he's no longer working with them, so she's telling all the troops that he's a traitor, and they attack him, so Namor's fighting the Atlanteans. She shoots him, however, and hits him in the head, and she's going to have him executed. Literally, they have him laying on the ground, and a guy's about to slash an axe and chop his head off. But luckily, Human Torch has now made it down there with his little compressed air concoction, and flames on underwater, beats up the executioner... And Namor and the Submariner basically beat up all the Atlanteans, who finally surrender. And later in Washington, the president grants freedom to him, Namor and his people, on the condition they behave. As he says, but Rathia must stand trial as world enemy number two, second only to Hitler. Only problem, however, is they get to London, because they want to go see how uh, Toro's doing. And they find out that the hospital was in ruin, and was bombed and they said luckily every kid was saved except the boy named Toro they search for hours and can't find him and now Namor and the Human Torch have a mission they have to find Toro if he's even alive and that's where the story ends not what I was expecting for a golden age story I mean besides the fact it was just one big story we have this continuity we have these other characters doing things I mean the angel appears briefly Patriot does have a little bit to do with it. Kazar is like oh, his own little minor subplot. And Toro is missing now and needs to be found still. I was actually impressed. I'm going to look, I'm gonna look in here and see if there's more of these Human Torch stories. I'm going to have to read more of these. They don't have many. They have a couple of them. Hopefully they have number six. So that was Human Torch number 5B. Like we said, it has a little bit to do with death. She has mostly a cameo. But I think this does set up a pattern of behavior for her. Just to round out whether other things that appeared in this issue, uh, they actually do have one ad. It's in this uh, digital version. It's a house ad for Daring Comics, featuring a new character joining the group. They already have new and old favorites as Rudy the Robot, never heard of it. The Little Prof, never heard of him. Blue Diamond, okay, I've heard of Blue Diamond. Silver Scorpion, never heard of her. The Finn, so I've heard of him. Captain Daring and the Thunderer, no idea who they are. But the new character joining them is Citizen V. And the reason that's interesting is because Citizen V is the identity used by Baron Zemo in Thunderbolts. I wasn't sure when I first read Thunderbolts if that was supposed to be a real Golden Age character or not, but he actually was. And they have one or two little minor features, a little text story, which I really didn't bother reading. <laughs> didn't feel like reading that, so who cares? Didn't feature the torture anymore. They have a little one-page strip called Tubby and Tack. About these little kids making a clubhouse, and they want to let the little, the little kid Tack join. And 
he makes him give back everything that he gave that that was his, which basically turned out to be everything in the clubhouse. The text story is about, by the way, Inspector Horatio Crown. And the end of the book has a feature called Unsolved Mysteries, including about a ghost who is convicted for murder, and Pierre Bassan, Norway's greatest criminal who always was able to escape within a di- within a month or so of any prison. And that's it. Say, kids, what would you like to do tonight? Listen to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast! Huh? Every week, these two really smart and funny guys give a synopsis of a Lovecraft story, then talk about background critical reviews and what the stories say about the author. How do we get these two boys into our home? HPPodcast.com! The internet? I don't know. It's wholesome family entertainment! We can even get on iTunes! It's easy! And then we can impress our school friends with all our arcane knowledge! Say, you know what I like to do on a night like this? With the dark woods out back silhouetted by the ghostly full moon, the branches shadows making all sorts of crazy angled patterns in the yard? You two aren't gonna do that again, are you? Why don't you two go out back and play with the shadows? Take the baby with you. Hey, there's already somebody out there. What? I think they're coming to talk to us. They should have listened. Yeah. Hey, we still can. Time to check the feedback. That's right. It's time for us to check our feedback. And this time we are talking about feedback from episode 137, Walk It Off, which was part of our Infinity Wars coverage in which my brother Joe and I talked about Infinity Wars numbers 4 and 5. On Facebook, the post about that episode, well, I can't see all the people who liked and shared thanks to Facebook's privacy settings. Thank you, Facebook. But at least I can see it was liked by Pat Sampson and Ruth Sutherland. So, Thanks to you both. On Twitter now, we can see more. It was liked and retweeted by Rad Ocean Broadcasting, Viet Huynh, Toys and Sometimes Jokes, The Daily Rios, Last Sons of Krypton, Connor McKenna, Capes and Lunatics, Chris Lydon, David Finn, Jason Snick Venable, Into the Night, B Bank, Clifford Riley, at Iron Man Suki, and Jeffrey Brown, parentheses, they slash them. If you want to hear more from me, besides on this show, you could also find me each week, more or less, on the L-E-G-I-O-N-P-O-D-Cast. On that show, we are talking about the late 80s, early 90s DC Comics sci-fi series Legion. That's the one the acronym. As well as the one spin-off that came out of the Legion book, Lobo. And you can find that show on the Legion of Substitute Podcasters feed, and you can find a link for that in the show notes. Now, you want to hear your name mentioned here, or you want to send us a message of some type that you'll hear me say on the episode? You can. This is how. You can like and share our episodes on our social media or make comments there. So on Facebook, just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. Our page will pop up. On Twitter, you can find us at AdamThanosPod. There's our Tumblr page, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. And, of course, you can send in an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Before I finish, one last thing. This show is part of The Collective. The Collective is a group of podcasters who decide to network in the most traditional sense, which is just getting together, sharing ideas, sharing episodes, etc. The stinger you heard at the very beginning of this episode? 
That's one of the collective shows. Go listen. That's all for this time. Thanks for listening to our first Death in the Golden Age trade episode. Next episode will be Volume 2, featuring our coverage of Death's appearances in Daring Mystery Comics number 8, Mystic Comics number 8, and Young Allies number 5, featuring The Thunderer, Black Marvel, Bucky, and Toro, with an appearance by Jason Venable from the podcast that goes snicked. See you then. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. Miller, your casting isn't a... <clears throat> Miller, your casting isn't a good... Nah.